Hello. Hey, hey. <laughs> Good to, to finally connect. Sorry about that. Oh, anyway, something popped up that I I was asked oh. if I wanted to hit yes to recording, and I hit no. But that doesn't okay. make any difference because you're recording. So, yeah, I don't need to. I'm recording. There are times when I've forgotten to record, and that is a, that is a, that's a tragedy when that happens. Yes, I can imagine. I can imagine you can't do it by memory. <laughs> doesn't quite sound the same, no. Anyway, thank you for doing this. It was thrilling to... Uh, just to be able to watch the movie and then bang, connect with you like that. I'm telling you that's, it's a, it's, it's a thrill. Oh, great. Thank you. Thank you. Sorry. It's a, yeah, we're right in the middle of a hurricane, a cyclone at the moment. Um, very intermittent. It's eerily quiet at the moment. It's just passed over, but, um, the Pacific Ocean just out that window. Um, and I can see quite a few ships all just parked out there, sort of sheltering off the coastline. On, ominous gray skies coming. It's been, this has been the wettest, the wettest summer in history that we've had because it's our summer at the moment, you know, so it's miserable. The electricity is on and off and on and off the whole time. So in the event that we do get cut off, if, if it suddenly cuts out, that's what's happened. I've lost power. <laughs> Good. Okay. Well, uh, what I'll do is I'll just briefly introduce you, then just uh, start with a bit of a, try and get a summary of Piketty's book. This is all about books. Uh, My podcast, I've been at this for more than 10 years. So, so that's going to be the focus really is, is what you did to adapt a book. You good with that? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, Justin Pemberton is a documentary filmmaker based in Auckland, New Zealand. His film, Capital in the 21st Century, based on the French economist Thomas Piketty's bestseller of the same name, premiered at the Sydney Film Festival in 2019 and was released worldwide in 2020. Justin co-wrote and directed a film entitled Chasing Great about a rugby player. It's the highest grossing New Zealander, New Zealand-ish, New Zealand film (laughs) in history. How do you say that? New Zealander? (laughs) Uh, Highest grossing New Zealand documentary film, yeah. Okay, so just like we would say Canadian as opposed to Canada, but you just leave it at New Zealand, right? We used to say New Zealander, but it's not, it's a New Zealand, but you'd say, you'd say Canadian film. Yeah, you would, wouldn't you, rather than a Canada we, film, but we say a New yeah. Zealand film. It is different. I've never noticed that. <laughs> Another film that he uh, directed entitled I Spy with My Five Eyes. This was an inter- interactive documentary. Welcome, Justin, to the Bibliophile. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be here. So we're most interested in learning how you went about adapting Piketty's book into a film. First of all, as I understand it, you got wind of someone who wanted to produce the film, and that that person happened to be in New Zealand. So you approached them. And you did a treatment of the film and then present it to them? How, is that how it worked? Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I, I already had the book, got the book um, when it came out and there was a bit of a buzz about it. And then heard, yes, through a friend of a friend in a very New Zealand way about this producer, Matthew Metcalf, who was trying to convince Thomas Piketty to adapt it into a film, which captured my imagination instantly because I thought, wow, that's, that's a really ambitious topic to try and put on the screen, but I, I could kind of see myself how it would be such an epic story, this story of Capital. He'd talked to a couple of directors who were completely terrified by it. <laughs> and um, I actually was editing Chasing Grace at the time. So I was, I, was, I was actually editing and shooting and we had quite a big, we had a deadline for that film. So went back and revisited the book. I spoke to Matthew and he, he was very keen for me and to just, just adapt it. Just write me a script, an outline, and we'll send it to Thomas and see what happens. Let's stop there and look exactly at 
the storyline then the the storyline of the of the book which yeah. is such a clear narrative already it's a clear it's a 700 page book but it's a very clear narrative isn't it um yes it is i mean if you if you tell it right down to the most simplistic idea it is that the idea that capital assets grow in value and and suck up more of the income and economy at a faster rate than anything else and so his thesis is basically that after world after two world wars there was a renegotiation of our relationship with capital and suddenly you saw the middle class arrive and you saw wealth being shared and that we are now slipping back into this 18th century style of of capitalism with extreme inequality and some landowning very wealthy people landowning because that's what land that was the main source of capital back then but now it's ip and actually ip is the biggest but you know asset owning wealthy elite who own everything and everybody else will get to rent their lives essentially is his theory that's where it's slipping back to and that that's a false state of capitalism without intervention his thesis that he outlines in the book it is obviously it has actually been written mostly as an economic text where there's a lot of formulas and a lot of graphs a lot of graphs um, and well it's very logical he proves this point very logical yeah so he yeah yeah so that's what he then wants to prove it so the challenge in a in a if you're going to sit sit down for 100 minutes which is the discipline that was put on the film by Matthew the producer but also the financiers the next level so you know obviously a big difference between making a film and making and writing a book is you're the sole creative in a film there is a tail that wags the dog to a point and the irony in this film was the capital was in control. So it had to be financed. It was an extensive film. Um, it had public and private money. So Thomas is happy about that because there's your, your mixed, your, your sort of mixed partnership rather than it just being private capital paying for it. Um, it's a New Zealand French co-production. So we had all these limits. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of parameters that I was given as well based on the financing of the film, but we can get to that yeah. later. Um, so, so basically, but well, one of the things was right up in front is this can't be a lecture where you sit down and you've got a whole lot of formulas and you're showing people, you know. No, so it would no. always have to be a companion to the book rather than the book on screen. You couldn't sit down and show you a hundred graphs in a hundred minutes and sort of prove it and prove a thesis. So, so that was one of the considerations. The other thing, right, right up front, um, in an early conversation with Thomas, it was clear that he didn't want to be holding up the film by himself. His original idea, I think, was if there was a film, it might just be narrated by a narrator. I don't know who, but, you know, probably not Morgan Freeman, but that style of a famous voice that tells you the story. He does the visa ads, right? <laughs> Morgan Freeman, does he? Oh, yes. probably. I don't know, he did, Mar- he did March of the Penguins, which I think could yes. be, is one of the highest <laughs> grossing documentaries of all time. Actually, he only did the English version of that. There's a French, French version of that too. So I was just tasked with, coming up with a way to put it on screen and the big thing different one of the big differences as well with the book versus the film is in the book thomas jumps around a lot his timeline is all all over the place um, as he sort of draws parallels through history um for people who don't have a grounded broad knowledge of history I, I figured that could be a little confusing because you're sometimes like the french revolution where does that sit next to the in terms of you know slavery in America and how on a timeline where's where's beginning of the industrial revolution and and then some people look to be honest some people don't even and I don't mean to say this in a derogatory way even though it sounds bad but there are people that are not sure even when the world wars were very interesting for me was bringing in a team of uh, a team of people and and having some young very young researchers um, straight out of film school who did some of the archive research and things because it was really interesting to say what do you know about the cold war what do you know what have you learned about you know world war Two? what do you know and these are smart people but it's still interesting to learn that a lot of people didn't even know were the nazis world war one or world war two so when you're making a film you have to think mm-hmm. a much broader, broader audience as well yeah right? um so the other do you have to do you have to is, dumb it down no, 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 I would definitely not say that. But I just think you need to have, um, you have to be understanding of what people's, what people's prior knowledge is. I don't think you should assume the audience is, is dumb at all. But I don't, I think 
you know, you can't necessarily assume everybody knows everything. And that's where the challenge is. It's like, what do we need to explain? What don't we? Are we preaching to the converted or aren't we? So that was a, obviously a lot of the discussion, you know, obviously this is discussion that happens later anyway. It's not in terms of my treatment. I, the point was I wanted, I started doing a timeline for myself. And the more I looked at it, I thought, I want to actually follow capital on a journey through time, which is the slight difference between what he did in the book. Um, and I thought that would be an easy way for the audience and an audience that don't have, a, who aren't doing a you know university degree in economics, it would be much easier for them to be able to see and feel the, the power of capital. So we sort of, I sort of imagined it almost as a, as a wild animal that gets tamed in the in the middle of the film with these this devastation of a Great Depression and two world wars, and we come out the other side, and suddenly the power of capital is harnessed in some way. It's restrained and it's controlled. It's tamed, and then slowly through the eighties and and beyond, there comes this this idea that we need to release it again to create more wealth and yeah. its magical sure. powers, and and so that's kind of the abstract thing I kind of thought of it as a horse in a way and I don't know if anyone's ever noticed this but there's a lot of horse imagery through the movie there's, uh, there's a beautiful I noticed that beautiful scene of these horses almost like dreamlike r- running along the the plains right before uh Brammer Ian Brammer mm. comes in because mm. he uses yeah, that, so that's at the end yeah yes. in the snow and there's yeah, um, but also at the start of World War One, you know, it's the, everybody's on horseback. And so it's all these horses running in to battle and just, you know, being, you know. So, but the, the big thing is, of course, the horse is one of the things that has a huge impact um, as a result of automation. And, and so there's so, so many parallels with are we going to be the horses of the future, <laughs> which is what Ian Bremer said, when you no longer need labour, what, yeah. what do people do? What do people do? And of course, before, so that the thing that you'd see and when you look back in history, is just how many horses there used to be until the car arrived, you know, or, the, or, or any kind of automobile um, and including well, war, you know, there were horses instead of tanks. There were just horses everywhere. And then suddenly not as so many what, did, what did they do? Just stop breeding horses or what? I mean, yeah, the horse population declined through various things. Stopped, there was a le- less demand, so they stopped breeding them, um, and some were eaten and right. took, turned okay. into dog food and things like that. Yeah, so there was just no longer the we no longer needed that supply of horses, and then some became pets, and you know, or sport became sport things, but they've yeah. become a, a less crucial animal that we don't need as much anymore. Okay, so it seems to me that you know one of the key takeaways of this book is that capitalism is unfair and that's a really strong feeling like if you if you feel that something is not fair or it's unjust I can't think of a much stronger feeling than that Mm. what's interesting is certainly capitalism in the wild in a sense because What's really interesting when you look at the journey, journey of capitalism is there was this point where, to which it sort of almost grew a conscience and decided things need to be done yeah. differently. And that's yeah. when there's suddenly things of, we'll have universal health care, never quite reached it to America, but through much of the developed world. Let's have mm-hmm. free education. Uh, let's start thinking about unemployment benefits and, and, and pensions and sick leave um, and, and, and having a 40-hour work week, you know, all these things that was yeah. like an enlightenment that yeah. capitalism had. But of course, what was happening at the same time was the birth of communism and it was just this war of, of, of ideology in terms of which is going to win. And it was the fact that capital, I think, felt threatened and actually also had led us into two world wars, which in many ways was a fight over wealth, those both worlds, wars, um, was that that things needed to change. Really interesting thing is where you know where we we reach towards the end is where we're heading into that world again. Unfortunately, I think history, you know, in terms of the human lifespan, our time horizons are around our own lives, and so things seem to move very slowly. But that was the other reason that I was keen to sort of zoom out and look over four hundred years of history because then you can see things moving quicker. So I think we're in that play again where young people in particular in particular are looking and thinking well look at the prices of real estate and houses now how could I ever own a house 
you know, look at climate change, look at automation, look at everything that's coming down the, down the line, that the future is not looking positive for me. I'm not going to be a comfortable, you know, middle-class person who can sort of retire and have this, you know, even afford to have children. People are thinking, it's just how do, you, how, do you, how do you manage this now? And things are looking bleak. And I think the idea is it, it is because we've basically let loose the forces of capital and without doubt you've seen the rise of uber wealth to the top mm. um, suck it up suck it up and through things like disasters like the pandemic as well you know if you look at the wealth creation that that took off in that period it's extraordinary even to the point of the amount of money that was sucked in through government subsidies and things you know them crying oh we need help we need help so um it, it is, it's incredible that we're hitting this inflection point again. And I think the big point Thomas wants to get across, and it's kind of one of his last words in the film, is that you don't actually need to go through those crises that we went through last time. Because we know now. Yeah. We know. But if we don't address it, there could be quite a lot of crisis points coming. I think his biggest fear is the rise of fascism again. And, you know, for authoritarian personalities, you know, I think... It's, it's very appealing to always think that, well, things are not equal, but at least I'm not at the bottom. And that's what fascism offers you. It offers you the, the ability to sort of kiss up and kick down because there's always someone worse than you that you can put your shit on. So it's very tempting when things are bad. It's a, it's a model that, you know, attracts some people that need to feel some sense of superiority. And it's a, and, and of course, it's very tempting for politicians as well to um, to use something someone as a scapegoat rather than deal with the actual structural issues of wealth inequality well that's the big problem is that the power the powerful are (laughs) very reluctant to let go of power and very reluctant to pay more taxes which is basically what Piketty's solution is yeah, I, I think it's quite interesting. There is a movement of rich people saying, tax us more now, that's starting to pop up among some wealthy people. Otherwise, we risk what you show in your film, which is a shitload of violence, violence and yes. destruction. And if you think about it, their wealth is so enormous now that actually they won't even miss it. If you I look know. at a billion dollars, how much a billion dollars is, and if you wanted to try and spend it, I, you know, it would be a real challenge. You've clocked up a super yacht and a plane and, you know, staff and houses here, here, and here, and you start adding it up, but you still don't get to a to a billion dollars, which is, which is 1,000 million. And so that's a lot. So beyond that, it's like when you've got people that are worth a hundred billion, it's it's so insane that they don't they couldn't spend it if they wanted to. They're not doing anything with it. It's literally hoarding. And it's hoarding because it's like a trophy. It's a showpiece now. I'm on a I'm on the list of the richest, and I'm the richest or second richest man in the world. So I'm gonna, you know, blow forty billion on Twitter or whatever, you know. So because I can, it's meaningless. So that's when it becomes, you know, this term that's not in the film that I only heard later which i just love is this is that's referred to as morbidly wealthy which is where it actually becomes toxic and i love them (laughs) morbid wealth okay so let's just uh focus then on exactly how you converted what you read onto the page to start with i i um broke it into three acts which was quite a a good way for me to imagine a film. Documentaries are often three acts, but other things can be five or nine. But uh, uh, for me, it's like to make it more simple. Um, and so I had the past, the present and the future. And obviously, traditionally, act two is the long one. Act one is the big setup, And then act three is some sort of resolution or sort of, you know, the where we're building to. So what basically I wrote this thing, I broke it down, I put what I thought and tried to bring in real-world examples of things like the gig economy and stuff like that. I went to Thomas. He was really positive. I mean, that was a very, 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 very scary moment of thinking, here comes the feedback. Um, Because he hadn't 100% agreed to the film yet. He had agreed to look at it. There were other producers who were sniffing around saying, we'd like to make the book too, which I think is just what happens when a book becomes a bestseller. Um, I don't know what their ideas were, and I don't even know who they were, but I know that they were from, I think, 
one was American and the other was European, but it could have been British European. I'm not sure. But um, and we were the people from down down the bottom of the world. So I think that was actually something that appealed to him. In fact, he said it was that he liked the fact that he didn't see us as part of the global north, which, you know, economically. <laughs> well, you're clean. Are, but... <laughs> You've got such a lovely, clean, uh, clean reputation, just like Canada does. Yeah, it's, I think he sort of thought, yeah, or a Scandi country or something. Yeah, you know, like yes. we might as well be from Denmark or something. But anyway, um, but the big thing, and he said, you know, I remember they got this email back saying, I think I'm going to like the movie very much, which was huge. Um, he did say though that most important for him is at least fifty percent of the movie is dealing with the past, at least fifty percent because he thinks that's the most important thing so we rebalanced it a little bit so and he was right there was like we need to give more we need to do a lot more back there but I decided to maybe I'd have glimpses of the present day that we'd punch into and then jump back in time to keep showing some sort of relevance so there are little little yep. sequences that will appear and then we go back in time back you know like uh goes into talks about the Gilded Age and we get flashes of of modern day world and art auctions and, you know, modern day wealth. And then it goes back in time to the great depression or something, you know, that's one way to keep it the past into into wine with the present. And actually the way it worked out, I decided not to focus too much on it. It's just take it as a high level note, but actually works out almost impeccably. The, the halfway point in the film is the arrival of Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher. And that uh, is the inflection point. That is yeah, where the argument yeah. comes up. You know, look at Germany and Japan, the countries that lost the war, they're getting ahead, they're catching up. We need to release the power of capital. And Margaret Thatcher's like, let's sell off the public assets like British Airways and the railways. And Yeah, and everyone's yep, going to benefit yep. because it'll trickle down to the, to the lowest and we'll all be one, mm-hmm. we'll all be really happy. Mm, yeah. The surprising point, which I think uh, Joseph Stiglitz pointed out was they knew that inequality would get worse but they didn't really care because they thought but everybody will get better you know which is sort of like yes we'll get richer of course we'll be the ones to get the richest but you'll still be rich so you're you know and and for a little while it did work and there is certainly a romance around margaret thatcher and ronald reagan that is is everlasting into their political to their political parties today you know in britain and the uh, Conservative Party, there's so much of this, I'm the next R- Margaret Thatcher that, you know, Liz Truss was saying and Rishi Sunak was saying and even Boris Johnson, you know, sort of, even though he likes to think himself more as a Winston Churchill, but but they, they do sort of idolise her in the same way in the Republican Party, there's a lot of sort of romance around Reagan. Well, and, and the really weird and, thing is they do look stately by today's leadership standards. Mm-hmm. Well, they yes, I think that's a bit like George Bush looking so good now compared to what we got with Trump. And of course, it's uh, it's telling that Trump uses exactly the same "Make America Great Again" that Reagan used. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was something we definitely wanted to put in. Actually, you know, I started filming the day when Trump got elected. Like we right. were supposed to be in New York shooting um, at a voting booth. We were. I asked if we could be at Trump's rally even though everyone thought Hillary was going to win unfortunately again the finance the capital the financing hadn't closed in time um so even though we had this the shoot set up we couldn't go we ended up losing you know not being able to cover that part of the election and we started shooting I think two weeks later in London but that was very much the start of the film was him getting elected so I was filming most of the interviews were done in the end of 2016 and through 2017 he was very much dubbed big political movement and figurehead that loomed over the entire production but made a decision not to put him in because I felt had this feeling of like peace now and this film isn't about what's happening right now and he is a symptom rather than the cause he's a he's yeah. the result of this this sort of autocratic uh, dick dickhead that uh, is taking advantage of people's resentment Mm, totally. I mean, he is obviously a very wealthy man that has talked about how he's going to fix this broken system that's unfair um, and then hasn't. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so uh, first of all, the reason I was getting at uh, the unfairness of the the whole system and and the emotional upset that that causes, making a film, as I understand it, this is exactly what you have to appeal to, is the feelings of the audience. So, again, 
what you did the three acts, then you what you basically filled in a sort of chronology and then you went after either footage from old black and white films or you shot your own stuff or you used new films too, newer films anyway. So maybe you could just take us through that a bit. One of the things that Thomas uses a lot in the book is he talks about what was pop culture of the era. Um, he doesn't really talk too much about movies, but he talks a lot about not literature. So he talks a lot about Balzac and Austin and, yeah. you know, and, and uses them as if, uh, well, as, as records of a public mood and sentiment and the ideas of the day. And I really liked that and thought, well, if you actually look at sitcoms and music and contemporary films, they are all reflecting ideas and moods of the, of the day as well. So, I mean, one of the big classics is right, Wall Street, right? The Oliver Stone film, which yeah. when Oliver Stone released it, it was supposed to be a commentary on yes. this disgusting greed and unfettered capitalism. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, the Gordon Gecko character is so powerful, he becomes this hero. And that saying, greed is good, becomes almost this license for people to, to just do whatever to get rich. So I had the idea that we wanted to include some popular culture because in many ways, again, for a film, it makes it a little bit more um, appetizing, um, particularly for people that don't want it to be too dry. And I like that. I mean, I, I, I like pop culture. It also reflected more the kind of film that I'd want to see and, and the way I want to travel through history. So we did use some modern day movies uh, occasionally of the past, but the discipline we put around them was that they were always um, based on stories that were written in the, at the time. So there is like Tale of yes. Two Cities. And, um, it's not that modern, but obviously it wasn't wasn't the movie from from the eighteen hundreds <laughs> before. No. But it was the, it was a black and white movie. But I think it was from thirties. That film I can't remember. But um, yeah. Yeah. we used a bit of Les Misérables, which is of course not an actual story but is a story written and from the era and includes the ideas of the era I mean that travels through a lot of time but um yeah uh Grapes of Wrath is another one but that was written and that was that is from the era and then at the end we've got a sci-fi film which is set in the future but it's, yes yes it's, that shot where they're sort of sitting by the pool and you see in the background this valley with the great big arch i mean it's uh yeah it's extraordinary so what when you were doing your treatment did you you basically envisioned all of this and you sort of said yes yeah, so okay, here comes so I, the c- clip here comes this clip here comes this clip not quite to that level it was it's not written quite to that level but what there is, what there is is there's a proposal which basically is the written sort of story in terms of this is the scene is and this is what you're going to see so we visually represented that as well so I'd, I'd include imagery and there would be an image of Gordon Gecko from um, Wall Street or there would be an image of um, something from a Jane Austen a Pride and Prejudice or something um, so so he could see that there was going to be this that there were going to be movies I hadn't it wasn't the final selection at all I think I yeah, had something okay. from 12 Years a Slave in there at one point which was yeah. just too hard to clear, even though we really wanted it. Because the next hurdle is, of course, you actually have to get permission to use the films. And we did pay for them. We didn't just use them as trying to get away with fair dealing or fair use, which some movies do. But that's why you're allowed. In our movie, you see a lot more of the films. We did. We have longer than a lot of... But I think a lot, there's a lot of, a lot of movies now that use little snippets of archive from different things, but they usually only show a few seconds. Yeah. In 10 seconds, but we've we had uh, up to, I think, a minute and a half of sort of Pride and Prejudice and a, I think a minute of The Simpsons and things like that. So because we were paying for them, so we had yeah, to go all you, the way how... to show the cut scene and everything. But So that's all done later. After that okay, but just, so in the proposal just, stage, you don't, yeah. You don't do Sorry. that, but just before I forget, how much, if, you, if you're able to divulge it, how much did you pay for that Wall Street clip? I don't, to be honest, I don't know, because that's, that's one of the, um, well, two things. One is I decided not to bother myself. <laughs> it's the producer's job. Um, yes, and yes. And it was cleared out of France, because it's a France-New Zealand co-production, so there's also a French producer, 
and they were in charge. Part of what they brought to the party was that they were their side of the ledger was that they're responsible for the archive. I can tell you that there was a lot. It was a very, very, very significant part of the budget was spent on clearing what comes under the umbrella archive, but it include, included music. So things like 95 by Dolly Parton, which I yeah. know was an expensive thing to clear, um, which the French didn't quite get because it wasn't a hit there. So they were like, this is this. Um, but, you know, incredibly famous track for, you know, the Anglo-Saxon world anyway. And Dolly Parton is such a big star. So uh, we tried to clear a, a Rihanna track, but we couldn't, even though we thought we had at one point. And it wasn't Rihanna that blocked it. It was one of the other songwriters who I think might be Kanye, but I'm not 100% sure because we tried to clear something else that he was also associated with that he also blocked. <laughs> that's because so he's, that he's a Trump supporter. That's why. It, we didn't know this at the time, though. <laughs> and the big thing was it wasn't his music we were clearing. These were, these no. were tracks that he'd either produced or, or written, co-written, and he might have only just done the, the beats or something. But, um, you know, but anyway. Um, so, so the clearances was incredibly extensive and again another irony because one of the things I thought the biggest part of the budget was spent clearing capital you know uh, yes, renting yes, this yes. intellectual property to put in our film and 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 it was annoying um but at the same time you know yeah. and the other uh, irony was the the location fees so when you do an interview you have to find somewhere to interview someone and the location fees were through the roof because they're in cities like Paris, London, and New York. And the amount of money that you had to pay to just have this space was insane. But you don't pay the people who are appearing. So the people who are actually telling you the story and, you know, presenting the film to us, doing the talking, they're yeah. not paid. But the real estate where they're sitting is getting, you know, mm. a lot of money. So there was some really uncomfortable ironies. Why didn't you just do it in your hotel room? well you couldn't <laughs> you you literally couldn't in the hotel room too it's you know we need a lot of space for that system it's the it was the the Interatron okay. system that that Errol Morris uses with quite a lot of they're talking in it looks like they're talking to camera but they're actually talking through autocue monitors and they're completely tented out and there's lights around them and that yeah okay. So okay. you needed a okay. decent space and also sound okay so Again, you, what you've done is you've done a, a chronology of the century and you've then come up with idea, visual ideas on how you're going to show what happened. And what the film does, I see, is that you, you really do a lot of cutting. It's not exactly like a, an MTV video, but it's very, uh, very lively, very active. It's it's very hot, you know, high energy. Yeah, it depends on what you're used to, what you like. I mean, potentially it's a little more Netflix and it's pacing. So big thing, the other big thing here is when I talked to Thomas right at the beginning, I was like, who's going to watch it? Why do you want to make a film? He wanted to make a film to reach the people that wouldn't read the book. And that is actually the most important part of this film. I don't, that's probably not always the case with, adaptations but in this the book had already sold over three million copies globally i think it had such huge reach but people who weren't reading it were people like his daughter and i mean i'm sure his daughter has read the book but he wanted his daughter who was i think 18 19 at the time like how and young you know students young that young it had to appeal to a younger audience because they were the ones that have got the most at stake so uh you know hence the, the pop culture and the color and to keep it moving again we had the 100 minute discipline there were moments when i thought i could have certainly we, there were moments where it slowed down you know we're like we need to slow this down and then again someone would come over the top from the, the producerial capital the money side and go no no you need to speed this up it was bizarre it was different hands or different parts of the brain you know moving in different directions so that's it, where we landed in the end it was a very strange thing I mean I, I I had much longer scenes at one point and we were racing against the deadline to get it done and I had three edit suites running at the same time two that were still cutting the film and a third one that was cutting everything down and the film hadn't actually been completely finished yet because of archive we were still waiting for and things so it was a very it was a very 
interesting and strange process, but actually a process that probably has more in common with contemporary creative processes. Particularly, I was interested, I was reading an interview with Beyonce, where she was talking about her creative process, and she has multiple studios running at the same time and different teams of songwriters, and she's whipping. Mm. And I was like, okay, I need to think that I'm making it like that. <laughs> and that helped a lot when I thought about it like that. And it is a collaboration, um, as opposed to, you know, quite different with writing a book. It's very much a, a solo effort. I don't think, you know, there's not a lot of collaborating other than perhaps an editor, whereas a film. Besides this, the finance that's paying for it that has its, its restrictions on it, and that could be just from delivery or budget, or it could be from we want more of this or less of that. They have quite a big say. Um, and then there's producers. Then there's um, obviously me and the editors. I had three editors on it. Um, and then it starts to get found out to other people. But what do you think of this? You know, and I'm not always in control of that either. And then, of course, there's Thomas himself who had to have a screening. Um, yeah. And the big thing with him, I know he found it a little, he probably found it quite fast. He, you know, he enjoyed it, though. Um, the thing he said is, looking forward to showing it to my daughter. So I was like, okay, we're, yeah. that's good. I think there was, I can't remember any change. Uh, I think we actually recut, might have recut the horses scene at the very end again a little bit because, he wanted to make sure people weren't thinking that we were going to have this genocide of people, which is similar to what happened to horses. Because there used to be a grab where Anne Bremer says the horse population just collapsed overnight. And I think they yeah. had this fear that are we suggesting that people are going to, the population of the earth is going to suddenly have to be culled. Um, so we recut, we, we did a little bit of clarity around that. And other than that, I think there was one factual thing that we needed to tweet from the Great Depression and he was happy. So that was... That was a good relief. <laughs> I thought it was interesting that he spoke in French, even though he does speak uh, English. So that was one of the requirements of the capital. So the financing. Oh, of course. Yes, the French had, component. Yes. Because it was a French, had to be, it's a French co-production and it's French. But, and the financing has a restriction on it that all French people must speak French in this film. So he wasn't allowed to speak English based on the thing. And neither was um, his uh, earlier colleague, Gabrielle Zuckman, who now teaches at Berkeley and we interviewed in San Francisco. And his English is perfect, but I had to interview him in French. He had to speak French and I had to have a translator there telling me what he'd said. And I honestly, it was very strange having him speak in French to me and then him listen to the translation of what he'd just said, because I know <laughs> that he could have put it better himself because someone's now trying to translate you know, the economic ideas, whatever. So, so there's three, there are three French interviews in, in the film. Um, yeah. But Thomas, at the same time, you know, he's not, he's not, his French is his first language and French is where he's most comfortable. Yeah. He does have quite a strong accent when he speaks in English. Um, yeah. And I know that he doesn't find it as easy to always find the words. He, he prefers to speak French. I had live translation for his interview so someone was trying to translate it live into my ear as he spoke and he is um, known for not finishing, you know, like, a, like many kind of smart, intelligent people, perhaps he's doesn't always finish his sentences, changes his tack halfway through, um, just sometimes drops words. He's very, very fast with the way he talks. It was a real challenge for the people translating live. And sometimes it just turned into, I'm not sure where he's going with this. Um, they got confused too. So, um, yeah. So even when he's speaking French, I'm saying he's 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 100 miles an hour and um, all over the place. So, well, you know what's interesting is that it kind of slowed it down a little bit because what you have to do is read it. So it's an interesting mix between a lot of energy and cuts and. Uh, violence to be frank there's a there's a lot of violence which is which i think is you tell me it, it seems to like it's a frightening what could happen if we don't do something i.e tax the rich we could get and you show a lot of that violence well totally i mean it leads potentially to wars world wars the only two world wars we've had you know um and what war looks like in the modern age is the is the other thing to think about, you know. Um, it's quite interesting watching what's happening in Ukraine 
it's a lot more of a manual war than I would ever imagine, but it's not a world war. So it is, it is in a way it is. Well, it's not in this, it's not in the sense of like, we're not, it's not being fought with all the modern toys, not really toys, but you know, modern warfare weapons that exist. It's still operating with a lot of men on the ground. Yes. Um, And they're using, I mean, they're using those little killer drones and things, but if you, yeah, if you actually, if it was a full world war with NATO, that's something else. (laughs) One of the things that Piketty suggests, uh, uh, you know, in terms of solutions uh, is that we need an 80% tax on over 500,000, an income of over 500,000 a year to get rid of these insane salaries that are being paid CEOs. And then he also talks about uh, taxing like 15% on wealth, right? And uh, he does say in the end, he's just suggesting it could be this. Let's start here. Here's an idea. But but it's like wherever our thresholds are, I think his big thing is we should decide as a collective what we think is enough wealth or enough rich enough to... Um, the big thing with um, he wants definitely to, to tax capital and capital income in a way that, yeah, so salaries have become inflated and ridiculous in so many levels, but still there is still tax on on income. The biggest problem is the, the more the more money you have, the easier it is to hide it and to redirect it. So it can't be taxed. So that's one of the biggest problems. But but wealth itself, he thinks, should actually have to be productive. And if you're throwing all of your all of your wealth into unproductive assets like for example just gambling on the stock exchange by doing short trading and you know and and this is all currency speculation and you know these things that are in no way productive and including real estate speculation as well um it's like a black hole in terms of productivity then that needs to be taxed at a rate that allow that just erodes it but if you if you're investing in some sort of great new piece of technology that is moving around forward and becomes the new, then of course you can make income. Well, I think uh, one of the most powerful points in the film is where you talk about, or one of your uh, the experts talk about the fact that we don't live in the world of Adam Smith anymore, and that in fact only fifteen percent of what the banks have is in is sort of put toward productive mm. loans the rest mm. of it they're just shuffling money around and making a shitload of money and doing nothing yeah yeah that's um yeah that's rana she's she wrote a whole book on that <laughs> just that point um <laughs> which is amazing it's called the makers and the the, the makers and the takers yeah and what was it? one of that was a real joy actually finding that archive, you know. So, so in terms of a process again, just going back to that. Um, yes. What I yes. we so once we agreed on this concept of the film and everything, then it's like, so who's going to tell the story? So I had to cast the film, and so I came up with people that I thought could be good, and Thomas came up with people who he thought could be good, and and then we sort of put that list together. He he approved every single person, which was part of his agreement, and then I set off to go and interview everybody you know you'd interview people about almost the entire book so it's was, it was big long interviews two three hours each person at least um and then start to cut the themes this person can talk on this you know what's francis fukuyama going to talk about he's here what's yeah. you know what we're Bremer and his horses story for example i didn't even know about that an analogy that he was going to bring up he it was great i loved it and i thought well that's obviously an end towards the end and 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 so then it was, it's kind of a search for archive at that point. So when Rana brings up the point of Adam Smith, it's like, where are we going to find this imagery? And it was amazing that in the 1960s, America produced all of these little short animated clips, basically selling capitalism as an idea. Wow. And it was part of a, an ideological war with communism, obviously. And so... Even then, I mean, it wasn't the Adam Smith world, but they showed this concept of America as as as, a, as an idea where you know you can borrow money and get rich, and and this is how it all works, you know. And and they were so charmingly naive. I, I loved them. I loved them. Those little animations, you know. He goes and 
He goes, it just goes and speaks to everybody he knows, the man, and they give him money to help set up his hat business. <laughs> Even in the 60s, it didn't make sense, but that's a charming idea. And I, I loved seeing that as a fairy tale. You know, that's what those early animations were. They were sort of fairy tales, and it's a pretty seductive fairy tale. But like all fairy tales, it's actually a made-up fantasy. <laughs> Well, I think that's what the film does, too, is it uh, busts the moral justification for capitalism. It it shows that it is just a myth and that wealth is the, the myth being that wealth is generated by efforts, you know, ingenuity, risk taking, mm. intelligence, merit that that. And again, these are things that that, that are wonderful about capitalism. Mm. But it's just a myth. Yeah. It's not, it's not entirely a myth, though, because, again, in my generation, uh, in my generation, I've lived that. I'm, I I have benefited that way. The thing that gets me most pissed off is that my kids may not have mm. that kind of opportunity. I think the big thing that we want to get across is that capitalism can, can, can be morphed into a different kind of capitalism so thomas talks at the end about there are different there are many different kinds of capitalisms there's not just one but we talk about it as if this is capitalism and what we need to do is actually create a new form we uh, a a 21st century we need to reinvent it in a way that actually is a fairer system so if we believe that a meritocracy is important where hard work and and skill should get you ahead then we should allow that we shouldn't yeah. default, and this is why we wanted to open with the fall of communism, shouldn't default. We're not saying it's this or this. It's not binary. It's not, okay, we're communism then. And so we definitely show right at the beginning that is a failed idea and it didn't work and it was corrupted. But, you know, as it was Karl Marx that said that capitalism will eat itself in the end. Like it will create a lot of wealth. It will create a lot of invention. It gives a lot of incentives. So even he recognised that there was a lot of, there was a lot of, well, there was positive potential and there were some great things that could be achieved through it. But his concern was always, what's the end game? And we're now arriving at that end game, which is that point where capital will concentrate into such large pockets that it's completely unproductive and is actually toxic to society. And, you know, you've got even Apple, you know, it's sitting with billions in cash in, in, in tax havens, because it doesn't really know how to spend it or invest it, because what's it going to do with it? You know, like it's it doesn't just, want to bring it, it's it home because it's going to be taxed. It's just mm. making huge money off it by doing nothing. Mm. But for what reason? For what goal? You know, and that's the that's the point. You know, that's what we we're talking about earlier with Elon, people like Elon Musk and his wealth. It's like he couldn't spend it even if he wanted to. Yeah, that he's yeah. still guarding it. You know, and Tesla is still, you know, very very much. Um, sucking up government subsidies you know mind you so is the fossil fuel industry you know it's, 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 we have actually created a real mess of a system and it does need to be reinvented the scary point is you know even even obviously Karl Marx didn't even come up with a solution he died before he figured out what you should do with capitalism if you're not going down the right. communist route well so it's, it's revolution right? it's revolution I mean that's yeah, the but, but what's on the theory. other side on the other side of that, what what is the capitalism yes. that you're going to have? Is it where is the cap level in terms of wealth and tax, and and what is free and what's not, and what is the future? Because because we can't go back to the old style. We're living in a different world now. You know, we're in a digital space. We're in a different kind of intellectual property kind of space. And and so is it universal basic income or universal basic services, which is an idea that I think is quite appealing to a lot of people. So those services would not just be education and healthcare and things. They also would probably be internet nowadays, free internet for everybody. And, you know, things that will allow a much more level playing field and that can be funded if we don't allow such a massive hoarding of wealth by a few. But but the, the biggest problem is how do you get there? How do you get there peacefully? Yeah. How's this change going to happen? And, and particularly in... In a world, and I don't have the answers for this, by the way, and we didn't put those answers in the film because no, nobody's got no. them yet. But in a world where democracy is captured, where this so much wealth is actually injected into our political democracy to control and sway the outcomes in perhaps even more nefarious ways than have ever happened before um, in terms of disinformation and misinformation. You know, so 
what how how do you even save democracy when it's when it's starting to be polluted and is well it is polluted by this wealth now it's so hard you know it's the worst is obviously america which in many ways you've got to say is sort of really more turned into a plutocracy with democratic ambitions it's not really functioning anymore in in a way that which is what is allowing people like donald trump uh, and and Marjorie Taylor Greene and people like that to have such traction because there are so many people who are disaffected that they, you know, uh, are able to be captured. So I don't, yeah, I mean, America is 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 such an interesting dilemma. I mean, it's democracy is in trouble, and I think it's the home of it's sold to everybody around the world, not just the Americans, as this meritocratic free place where hard work gets you to the top and yet it's just not it's just not the case anymore um so how do you bust that open and do it peacefully and move to somewhere that is going to have a better outcome for most i I don't know but what we do know is china is coming fast uh, you know and and china is on its way to becoming the economic powerhouse of the world that will soon be a larger economy than america and that even seeing those two powers how does how does their relationship? What is that going to look like in the future? Where does that go? You know, one is coming up as a as, as a really powerful player and will become the powerhouse of the world, which America has held that title for so long. And how does that transition go? And what's on the other side of that? And I think that's um something that probably needs to have a a whole film in itself. Um, yes, know, I interviewed former head of the CIA and NSA, uh, General Hayden a few years ago for my I Spy documentary. And he was talking then about the fact that America doesn't know how to handle this. And they're not even putting enough effort into figuring it out because, you know, the the things that we should be looking at have been swept off the table by the urgent things that that need addressing, which means they're not really even, there's no intellectual rigor being put into steering that direction and charting a path. It's just a and, and 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 there's so much infighting anyway in America. You know, he's a famous Republican, and yet the Republicans hate him now because he's the old school Republican. You know, so Fox News slags him off. <laughs> he was George Bush's guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, just to to wind it down here, mm-hmm. I want to talk. I want to bring in Tarkovsky. <laughs> uh, because because of the, the the vigor with which you've been arguing your points, the passion that you evidently have for uh, for this project, it speaks to me uh, about the fact that you. And this is what he talks about. You, uh, the director needs to sacrifice himself for cinema and assume moral responsibility for what you produce. It clearly have. Mm, I hadn't heard, I hadn't heard that. Say that. Uh, (laughs) Well, what Um, I love too, like you have to be miserable. (laughs) Well, he also talks so beautifully about, about what you do as sculpting time uh, and a mosaic of time. I love that. It's interesting because he, he's almost the inverse in in some ways because he likes to play with time and in the other way of like long and slow and making you, you know, and making you sort of, I don't know, tying you into this moment. Let's fly was, over the top. <laughs> yes. Well, what I was going to say is uh, it's so refreshing because the fact that he does that is sort of poetic. It's not commercial. It's the opposite of mm-hmm. commercial. And, and it's very interesting to hear you talk about these commercial pressures that were imposed on you and you might have preferred a less sort of music video approach to to the making of it i don't i don't know if i would have because i definitely pushed that that whole pop culture thing was me that was my idea that was there from the beginning and that was what attracted Thomas, to a point, strangely enough, and certainly attracted the finance side as well, because they could see that this was not going to be a slow lecture of history. And that's what they didn't want. So I guess I 
I don't know. Um, I could have had, I certainly had longer scenes, but it was a longer film. And I, that, so that's, 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 that's the difference. Um, but also when you're dealing with archives, so like World War II, I had a, a I loved the original scene of that. It was sort of twice as long. And it's only two and a half minutes, I think, in the film anyway now, but it was like just under five. Um, but dealing with the archives, there weren't long shots back then, not of factual stuff, you know? Like those newsreels, they cut fast, <laughs> really fast. Yes, um, yes. So okay. some, there was a point to which some of the archive, you couldn't have made, you couldn't have changed it anyway. I think the Great Depression we've got is, is a black and white scene, and that's a little bit slower. That's as slow as you could get with some slow tracking shots, but it still doesn't, it's not a, a a locked off one minute shot of you know homeless people in Times Square or something that didn't that they still just are on are tracking through the city you know pretty fast but um so there was there was restrictions there yeah but I do like that I do like the I did want to make it a, a colorful journey I didn't want it to be a depressing gray lecture yeah. not that he would have made his like that anyway but um I just don't think that he would have uh, tried to put that much history in one. Well, maybe whatever. I don't know. I love Solaris, well, though. It's one of my favorite films. <laughs> here's, a, here's a paraphrase of what he says. He said, movie history is made by artists who express their inner worlds, a specific personal rhythm. The purpose is to express truth but what does truth matter to producers? <laughs> yeah, so he obviously, it's interesting, isn't it? That he obviously had that battle and, and that's within a communist system. Yeah. So I think it's a critique of American movies too, probably. Oh, the American movies, right. Of course he didn't, yeah, right. Which of course, at the time he was making films was very much a studio-based system. Final question then. What did you want to do with your music? The same sort of thing? Um, same sort of thing, meaning what, what, what was the same sort of thing? Well, the same sort of thing is appealing to a young audience. Uh, with the composed music, no, I was, um, no, definitely, definitely wasn't thinking of it in that, in that sense at all. With the composed music, so that was with the, the licensed music, which is the pop music which we put in there, which is everything from Lord to Kim Wilde and Dolly Parton and The Weeknd. But with the composed music, um, we went, went with a French composer who was half of the French band Air, which were in an electronic uh, band. And I liked the idea of it being electronic, but atmospheric. And I would say that, you know, um, sci-fi cinema was a major, major reference point. I love science fiction soundtracks a lot. So I worked with JB and um, I would put often some temp tracks down and might be anything from, might sometimes, I think we even used something from Blade Runner at one point or Solaris. But I just find things, but, but more often than not, he actually started composing in front of me. So he started saying, you know, he, I had all these tracks that he'd say, here's, here's something, here's something, here's something. And so he, I kind of let him stare at a lot. I had like, I remember with the, with the Nazi Germany scene, I had something that was, as a temp track that was a little bit sadder. And he completely re- reinvigorated it and put something that was a lot harsher and a lot more threatening. And I was like, oh, that's actually way better. So I was actually quite excited to work with him. Um, with, with, but what um, feeling, like yeah. what feeling did you want to elicit from the audience? With, what do you want? Well, it's depend on the scene. So with each scene would, was different. So with the horses at the end running through the snow, it was something that was a little melancholic that yeah. then grows as we move into the idea of all these robotic machines making all the cars and touching that driverless cars into something that was, that's gone from melancholy into something a little more threatening and modern and epic. And that track goes from something quite gentle, I think it's just piano, that's lonely, into something that builds and builds as the, you know, as the robots start making the cars and the cars sort of clog the freeways and then we end up in that science fiction film of LA in the 2050s or something. And also that scene has an echo of the horses running into the war. 
which I think is a similar it's a similar piano. I think we actually echo. So so the the music kind of ties together in some places. Um, sometimes it was a lot more. They were just yeah. I mean yeah. Each each scene had its own reference, but it was all tied together because it's in the sense that it's his his music. There is actually the soundtrack is available. I think on Spotify and on Apple Music, and you can actually play it. Um, he hasn't got all the tracks. This is really interesting because he chose to release that. Um, he doesn't have all the tracks in. They were all of my favorite ones because I think there's, there's <laughs> a lot of cues. But, and I was like, oh, he didn't put that one in. I love that one. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, yeah. but it's interesting to see the ones that, that, that he plays. And um, it's, I quite like listening to it. It's, it's really good to play it. It's good music to work to. And that's interesting in itself. But it's really good music to work to. But that's most science fiction soundtracks, I think, often... You put them on because you know there's no vocals it's, it's so it's just music and it's it transports you into a place that actually it's quite good for writing that's why hans hans zimmer is so good and it's, i should mention totally I should, I should mention that my daughter loves the soundtrack so oh, okay right. best advice for and this truly is going to be the last question for someone who wants to adapt a book into a treatment for a film? I would say the best advice for developing any film in, in, in many ways is to be able to have your story in one sentence and then be able to come back to that every time to make sure that you're advancing that. Because the horrible thing is, every film ends up becoming a sentence everywhere. And that's how everybody gets to it. They look at it and go, what's that film? And that's what IMVD has. That's what all the billing has. That's what, so, but it's actually a really good discipline because that's where you can, you can change your sentence, by the way. You can decide, no, actually, this is now the sentence. I do think you need to have some fluidity. I don't think it's rigid in that sense. But I would say that you need to be able to know what that is and, constantly be able to check it are we telling this is this is this what it is is this what it is does this relate to this because um so so that's just in terms of yeah any story i think um in terms of adapting a book i would say um a few i I don't know um i would say that you um i think you have to well you always want to be able to put your own your own take on it rather than second guess the author the whole way. You've got to feel some ownership of it in the sense that it is you're retelling a story that is now your story. Of course, the author should be happy with it and it should be, but, but it's basically your rereading of the story and then retelling it. In the same way, I guess a, a singer that hasn't written a song could remake a song and it could sound like their song. And it wasn't their song. You know, you think about people like Aretha Franklin would sing a Carol King song, but suddenly it sounds like Aretha's song. She hasn't written it. And in the same way, when you're so you're 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 telling the story again, but you're owning it and telling it from from what from the what you're getting out of it in terms of the soul, the message, the the feelings, everything that that it that is to you. And I think that's probably the most most important thing because if you don't have that, it won't feel authentic, and you can't really be second guessing what someone really meant all the way through it and trying to tell their yeah. their thing. So I don't so I think you can get too hung up on being too authentic to your reading of of what the author wants wanted. Hopefully you you you're on the money with the what the author wants. Yeah. <laughs> because that way you can that, that's that's the best thing. But you yeah. Certainly when we when I was writing this I didn't have to think I did not think about what Thomas would be thinking at all. Yeah, I just keep thinking. What do I? What do I see? What would I imagine? What would? How would you do this? Would you go? Yeah, where would you put this? How does this? You know, and and then just, I actually didn't have a lot of time to think too much in the original script because I was working on something else at the same time, which was quite pressured. So, which was probably really good for me because I didn't second guess it too much, and I wasn't really aware. I was aware it was being sent to Thomas, but I just wasn't really focused on that. And just thought, well, he's either going to like it or he's not. And I do have to be able to make it. So I just need to make sure that I've actually written something that I can actually make and that I would would make. And then luckily he did like it. (laughs) Yes. Well, I mean, the two are different. They're different, unique art forms. What you're doing is a, you know, is a different artistic 
expression than writing a book. It's different. It's it's mm. its own thing. Anyway, I'll just the word that I want to use is crucial. It seems to me that uh, that watching your film is crucial. It's even more important than climate change, the crisis, because if if we don't do what you're suggesting in this film, we won't be able to fix anything. Mm-hmm. I mean, certainly capital is the thing that's got in the way. It's completely the thing that has got in the way of climate change being addressed. Science has come out that shows that BP were on the money with their internal research about where, what was going to happen, and they buried it. Yeah. And they've then the oil companies have lobbied against any kind of action on climate change. Um, and, 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 and that's so fossil fuel capital has gotten in the way of this being addressed. They've spread disinformation. They've lobbied politicians to not change it. And they're even continuing to be subsidized to this day. You know, um, I mean, uh, it, it's, it's insane. It, it, it's, it's just but, insane. And it's, it's capital that's got in the way. So, yes, it is. It, it, it's a roadblock to the future. Great. Well, thanks for, for talking about this film. Uh, it was just, I was so excited to talk to you and uh, you fulfilled my hope of uh of <laughs> of, uh, of having a good conversation about it thank you so much thank you thank you thank you for your interest too appreciate it and thanks for being tolerant with the uh ever-changing situation um yeah it's been great talking thank you very good i've been speaking with uh, justin pemberton who is a documentary filmmaker based in auckland new zealand yes Very good. Thanks again so much.